Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Saudi Arabia accusing the White House of distorting the facts. The kingdom giving its view of oil production cuts and accusations it's siding with Russia. A Supreme Court decision said no to the counting of flawed mail-in ballots. Pennsylvania says yes. We have the details. The Biden administration is investigating the illegal immigrant flights to Martha's Vineyard. They say Governor DeSantis might have misused COVID relief funds. The president of America's second largest teachers union paid a visit to Ukraine, partly to assess poor remote learning conditions. Some say the union had a very different take on remote learning here in the U.S. during the pandemic. A jury recommends life in prison for the Parkland school shooter. He pleaded guilty to 17 murders and 17 attempted murders during the 2018 shooting in Florida. The jury was deliberating between the death penalty and life imprisonment without parole. In Florida, the death penalty is only enacted if the jury unanimously agrees. They have to decide if the murders were particularly cruel or were cold and premeditated and not outweighed by mitigating factors. The prosecutor said that the shooting was a systematic massacre and pointed to social media posts from the gunman showing prior planning and insensitivity to the suffering of the victims and their families. The defense team said that the shooter has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. They argued, quote, in a civilized, humane society, do we kill brain-damaged, mentally ill, broken people? Family members and jurors were tearful while the life sentence recommendation was read. From judgment to energy concerns, Saudi Arabia is accusing the White House of distorting the facts, specifically regarding oil production cuts and the kingdom's stance on the Ukraine conflict. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more on the U.S. dispute with its longtime ally in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia Wednesday night confirmed that the Biden administration did ask the kingdom to delay OPEC Plus's oil production cuts by a month which would have put the announcement around or after the midterm elections. Earlier in the day, the White House denied reports that it asked to delay the cuts until after the elections. I, I certainly can't confirm that report. What I can confirm is that we conveyed a consistent message to the Saudis. Energy supply needs to meet energy demand. The White House said Biden officials have traveled to Saudi Arabia in recent months, not just in September or October. OPEC Plus announced the cuts on October 5th, and they'll start in November. The Saudi statement said the kingdom told the U.S. that postponing the OPEC Plus decision for a month, according to what has been suggested, would have had negative economic consequences. Another item of dispute, Saudi Arabia's stance on the conflict in Ukraine. On Tuesday, the White House said it believes the production cuts show that Saudi Arabia is siding with Russia, which is a member of OPEC Plus. But the Saudi government said it's not siding with Russia and White House officials are trying to distort the facts. The kingdom said it supports U.N. resolutions regarding the Russia-Ukraine war and it believes all countries should adhere to the U.N. charter and international law. It also said it rejects any infringement on the sovereignty of countries. Saudi Arabia is an important U.S. ally. It's one of the biggest oil producers in the world. It's also key for stability in the Middle East. So a fallout could be bad for the United States. The kingdom stressed the importance of building on the fundamentals of the U.S.-Saudi relationship going forward, including mutual respect, enhancing common interests, and working towards peace and stability. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. 
More on this topic, the International Energy Agency warns the recently announced OPEC plus oil supply cuts could push up energy prices and tip the world into recession. The agency said in a recent report that oil demand is falling as central banks hike rates to tame soaring inflation, deepening the economic slump. Last week, the OPEC plus alliance agreed to slash oil output by 2 million barrels per day. The move delivered a blow to President Biden's pleas to the cartel to ramp up production. The White House then accused the alliance of aligning with Russia. The United Arab Emirates energy minister has said OPEC's decision was based on technical considerations and the decision was not political. And in regards to inflation, new data shows something you already know. High prices are hitting Americans hard. The Bureau of Labor Statistics shows people are still struggling with high prices. Overall consumer prices, an important measure of inflation, went up 0.4% in September, more than economists expected, and was up by 8.2% from the year before. As these numbers tick up, the Federal Reserve may continue with historic rate hikes. The Fed has already raised its benchmark interest rate five times this year, hoping to cool the economy by squashing demand. Moving on to elections, Pennsylvania says it will continue counting mail-in ballots arriving in envelopes with typos or incorrect dates. This after a Supreme Court decision threw out a lower court's ruling. The lower court allowed the counting of mail-in ballots where voters neglected to write the date on them. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more. The case concerned an unsuccessful Republican candidate for a judgeship in Pennsylvania, David Ritter. The justices vacated the lower court ruling as requested by Ritter. Ritter lost his 2021 election to a Democratic rival by five votes after 257 absentee ballots without date notations were counted. The high court's action meant that the lower court ruling could not be used as a precedent to allow the counting of ballots with minor flaws. This and the three states covered by this regional federal appellate court, namely Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Pennsylvania's election laws have long compelled voters to include a signature and date on the outside of return envelopes when voting by mail. However, a Pennsylvania official issued a statement saying, quote, Every county is expected to include undated ballots in their official returns for the November 8th election, consistent with the Department of State's guidance. That guidance followed the most recent ruling of the Pennsylvania Commonwealth Court holding that both Pennsylvania and federal law prohibit excluding legal votes because the voter omitted an irrelevant date on the ballot return envelope. The official continued that the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling provides no justification for counties to exclude ballots based on a minor omission, and we expect that counties will continue to comply with their obligation to count all legal votes. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. In other news, a Texas woman who wore a Trump 2020 flag during the January 6th Capitol breach was sentenced to 90 days of home detention. A judge says she should have exercised better judgment. The case involves a family that entered the Capitol through a broken window. The family spent 52 minutes inside, walking around and trying to find a way out of the building. The two parents of the family and the three children were all charged in the case. None of them were charged with violence or vandalism, but the judge accused them of helping to further a riot by joining the protest actions. In sentencing 30-year-old Christy Munn, the judge said the sentence was harsher because Munn wore a Trump flag like a superhero cape. She sentenced Christy Munn to 36 months of probation, including 90 days of home confinement, 60 hours of community service, and $500 in restitution. Her two siblings received relatively lighter sentences. From J6 to immigration, the Biden administration is investigating Governor DeSantis's transport of illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. The investigation is focused on the use of COVID relief funds for the relocation. Here's more. 
The Treasury Department opened an investigation into Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's flight of illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. The department's inspector sent a letter to members of Congress announcing the investigation. The probe is part of a broader investigation into how states used billions of dollars sent to them under the American Rescue Plan. The letter states that the Treasury Department would review the allowability of COVID-19 aid to states related to immigration generally and will specifically confirm whether interest earned on the funds was utilized by Florida related to immigration activities, and if so, what conditions and limitations apply to such use. The letter came in response to several House members who wrote to the Treasury Department in September demanding an investigation. About 50 illegal immigrants from Venezuela were flown to Martha's Vineyard, and the Florida government took credit for it. Hours after the illegal aliens were sent to the island, the Massachusetts governor's office deployed the National Guard before sending the illegal immigrants to a military base on Cape Cod. Governors Greg Abbott of Texas and Doug Ducey of Arizona have been using buses to transport illegal immigrants to Democrat-controlled areas. They say it's in protest of what they call President Biden's inadequate policing of the U.S.-Mexico border. The Democrat city of El Paso, Texas, has also sent thousands of migrants to New York City in recent weeks. Going overseas, some school kids in Ukraine are allegedly studying remotely from bunkers after recent Russian attacks. Now the president of America's second largest teachers union is in Ukraine to assess the poor remote learning conditions. Randy Weingarten leads the 1.7 million member strong American Federation of Teachers, or AFT. She departed on a trip to Ukraine in the wake of a new Russian missile blitz targeting major cities across the Eastern European nation. She tweeted, this Russian attempt to frighten civilians and the effect on children who are learning online today is why this Ukraine trip is so important. Weingarten again pointed out the fact that Ukrainian children are learning remotely in this video posted by the AFT. The schools are closed. Children are learning um, remotely or in bunkers right now. According to the AFT, she was planning to donate children's books and school supplies on her visit. However, her advocacy drew criticism on social media, with many saying that her organization made it harder for schools to reopen for in-person instruction during the pandemic. A senior fellow at the American Federation for Children wrote, you fought to keep schools closed for over a year, and now you're concerned about remote learning. In Ukraine? Republican strategist Matt Whitlock wrote, in Ukraine, kids got stuck with extended remote learning because of an actual war. In America, kids got stuck with extended remote learning because of Randy Weingarten. A publicized email exchange between the AFT and the CDC shows that the union successfully lobbied the CDC to modify its school reopening guidelines, which allowed teachers and staff living with a high-risk person to work remotely. The AFT also demanded that schools in communities with a lot of COVID cases stay closed pending updated guidelines. However, Weingarten indicated that circumstances and safety measures didn't allow school opening at the time. NTD reached out to the AFT for comment, but didn't hear back before broadcast. And coming up, no-knock warrants are back in the spotlight. A new report finds, in addition to the risks to civilians, officers are twice as likely to be injured or killed. We hear from the organization about their fines just after this break.
A new report details how no-knock warrants threaten the safety of police and civilians. The method is used to take advantage of the element of surprise, but not without consequences. Joining us now is Nino Marchese. He's the author of this new report and the Criminal Justice Task Force Director at the American Legislative Exchange Council. Pleasure speaking with you, Nino. Hi, Kevin. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, can you tell us more about your council's first-of-its-kind report on no-knock raids, specifically in terms of risk, controversy, and constitutionality? Sure. So uh, this is the first time the American Legislative Exchange Council has really um, taken an interest in this issue. Uh, We've seen this uh, come up all over the country ever since the uh, unfortunate Breonna Taylor uh, botched raid in 2020, uh, Amir Lachis earlier this year. Um, So we hear a lot of talk about why these raids are dangerous, but not so much as to the specifics to why. And something we wanted to point out is is that they really are inherently double-edged swords. Uh, I think we know uh, how there can be uh, confused um, situations and opportunities for misunderstanding when uh, police may not not can announce their presence before executing a search warrant, specifically dangerous to civilians. But these are also very dangerous for police officers as well, uh, given the situation that they create for confusion and potential violence. You mentioned how this is a double-edged sword. You know, since the start of the pandemic, violence crime has risen to dangerous levels not seen in two decades, and that's all putting Americans at greater risk. Law enforcement's use of no-knock raids is becoming more frequent. What does your report find as far as the unintended consequences for both police officers and civilians? Well, mainly just how likely the potential for unnecessary violent conflict really is with these raids. Uh, Take a search warrant. It's a very standard practice that police operate. It's non-controversial. Um, you know, it's constitutionally authorized and permitted for law enforcement to go to a judge to sign off on a search warrant. Um, there's no problem with that. It's following the process perfectly. The issue is when police don't knock and announce their presence and then they enter someone's home, especially late at night, you know, with that intention to get that element of surprise. People don't know who's coming into their homes and they're, they're uh, reasonably mistaking them for criminal intruders. So now you have two opposing uh, forces uh, almost, you know, the law, um, justly and constitutionally exercising um, their process, and then also civilians who, you know, are presumed innocent. Uh, they may not even be the subject of an investigation if they're, you know, in the home that the warrant's being executed on. And there's this realm where uh, the conflict is, a uh, uh, potential for conflict, rather, is, is so high. And so police officers, unfortunately, they're, they're being harmed because of these situations. People are mistaking them for criminal intruders and deciding to protect themselves and their lives. And police officers are responding appropriately by executing their warrants uh, and also defending themselves in those uh, dangerous situations. Certainly that does put these officers in a dangerous situation. Now, I want to know, how has your report created a bipartisan atmosphere around this? I mean, how have you gotten conservatives to listen in? Right. That's a great point. You know, uh, I think we hear a lot of people uh, on the left or Democrats kind of talk about this issue um, among the various other police reform initiatives and efforts. And... I'd like to see more conservatives take a take a position on this issue, um, not only because of the inherent risk for civilians uh, to be injured, uh, but also because of the law enforcement. A figure in our report, there's a study from 2010 to 2016 that pretty much shows no-knock rates are twice as likely to lead to uh, the injury or death of a police officer compared to that of standard search warrants. So if we are really trying to crack down on crime in the country and get these crime rates down and Uh, protect police officers, give them the training and resources that they need to do their jobs properly uh, while respecting people's liberties and, you know, safeguarding the public. We don't need to be adding uh, to the the numbers of problems and issues facing law enforcement today by 
uh, creating these unnecessarily violent uh, situations. Very important issue. Hopefully something can be done. Nino Marchese, American Legislative Exchange Council, great to have you on today. Thank you for having me. Credit card details from over 1.2 million people worldwide were leaked onto a dark website called Biden Cash. The leaked database contains card numbers, expiration dates, CVV numbers, and emails of consumers. The release is one of the largest leaks of its kind on an underground forum in recent times. The country with the most affected consumers is the United States, with over 670,000 card details divulged. Visa was the most affected card type, followed by MasterCard and American Express. If you are concerned about your information, monitor your accounts for any unusual charges and report them right away. You may also consider changing your passwords or freezing your credit. Analysts believe the stolen data in the leak mainly comes from web skimmers. This is where a malicious code is injected into an online payment page. The Biden Cash website was established on the dark web in April 2022. It's become one of the most popular underground shops. And we're officially in a bear market, and economists say it's likely markets will remain volatile for a while. Coupled with soaring inflation and interest rates, it has some Americans worried about their nest egg. So what can you do now to protect your portfolio? Here's some tips for the concerned investor. Anxiety is high for both investors on Wall Street and Americans trying to protect their retirement and savings in this bear market meaning many stock prices are falling and driving down Americans' wealth. What I see for a lot of people is panicking. Should I even be investing in the market? And it comes as Americans continue to face soaring inflation and interest rates, a mix that has consumers concerned. Folks are really struggling to make ends meet, and then the idea of putting money into the market when it's so volatile at this point, I think it's causing a lot of people a lot of anxiety. Money expert Janice Torres has these five tips to protect your nest egg. Number one, check your existing assets and be realistic about how much you're investing. I like to tell folks, don't invest any money that you don't need for at least 10 years. Two, prioritize your emergency fund. Cash is king for rainy days ahead. So have a good cushion to weather any potential financial storm ahead. There's a lot of possibilities for folks to lose their jobs. Increasing your cash savings in case you do end up losing your job is a great position to be in. Three, Reconsider your contributions to your 401k and Roth IRA and other retirement accounts and make adjustments to make sure you can boost your cash savings. Number four, if you're in good financial footing, then this may be a good time to take advantage of the volatile pricing of the stock market. When things are on sale, it's a great time to buy. As a consumer, we like to buy things on sale, and so the stock market is pretty much the same concept. And finally, stay calm. Avoid checking your accounts too much if it's causing you panic. The Washington, D.C. deputy mayor resigns following assault and battery charges. He allegedly entered into an altercation outside a gym in Virginia. Arlington County police report the former deputy mayor, Chris Geldart, began arguing with a man after opening his car door and hitting the victim's vehicle. He allegedly grabbed the victim's throat during the dispute. Geldart previously served as director of D.C. Homeland Security and director of the Department of Public Works before becoming deputy mayor for public safety. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser announced Geldart's resignation on Wednesday. She didn't go into detail about their conversation, but said both agree, quote, the focus should be on the big issues affecting D.C. A city administrator and former deputy mayor will handle Geldart's duties until a new deputy mayor is appointed. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. 
And still to come, Japan says North Korea can mount miniature nuclear warheads on missiles. And North Korean media reported the testing of two long-range cruise missiles. Fleeing Russians take yachts to South Korea. Most of them are refused entry. They appear to be escaping potential military conscription. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. Miniature nuclear warheads. Japan's defense minister said today he believes North Korea can mount them on missiles. And Pyongyang state media reported today that the North has test-fired two long-range strategic cruise missiles capable of carrying nuclear weapons. North Korea says it successfully test-fired cruise missiles that can carry nuclear weapons. State media reported on Thursday, leader Kim Jong-un oversaw the launch of two long-range strategic cruise missiles and called it a test to, quote, confirm the reliability and operation of nuclear-capable weapons deployed to military units. The Korea Central News Agency, or KCNA, said the test launch was held on Wednesday, adding that the two missiles clearly hit the target 1,240 miles away. KCNA said the exercise was aimed at, quote, enhancing the combat efficiency and might of cruise missiles deployed to the Korean People's Army for the operation of tactical nukes. Pyongyang first tested a strategic cruise missile in September 2021, which analysts at the time saw as possibly the country's first such weapon with a nuclear capability. Wednesday's test confirms that nuclear role and that it is operational. Adding to concern in the region, Japan's defense minister told the Japanese parliament on Thursday North Korea has likely achieved the capability of mounting miniaturized nuclear warheads on missiles that could reach as far as Japan. And over in Japan, the Japanese space agency failed to launch a rocket on Wednesday. It was the country's first failed launch in nearly 20 years. Officials say the Epsilon-6 rocket experienced an unidentified abnormality shortly after takeoff. The agency sent a self-destruct signal after deciding that the rocket was not able to fly safely and enter orbit. The agency says they're still investigating the cause of failure. The Epsilon rocket was carrying eight payloads, including two developed by a private company. It was the first time an Epsilon rocket carried commercially developed payloads. This was Japan's first failed rocket launch since 2003. More than 20 Russians reportedly sailed in yachts down the North Pacific coast to South Korea to avoid the draft to fight in Ukraine, but most were refused entry, according to a South Korean lawmaker. Russian yachts have been arriving in South Korea in what appears to be an attempt to avoid fighting in Ukraine. This one is docked at port in Pohang in the country's southeast. According to a South Korean lawmaker, more than 20 Russians have sailed in yachts down the coast to South Korea since late September, aboard four yachts, desperate to avoid military call-up to fight in Ukraine. Only two have been granted entry, however, the lawmaker said. The others were refused entry because their purposes were, quote, unclear and they did not have sufficient documents. In general, Russians are allowed to enter the country without a visa as long as they obtain prior approval via South Korea's electronic travel authorization system. 
There's been an exodus of conscription-age men from Russia since President Vladimir Putin ordered a partial mobilization in September. Most have fled by road, rail and air to Europe and neighboring former Soviet Union countries like Georgia, Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan. Here in Pohang, two crewmen believed to be Russian were seen on the vessel. Reuters was unable to independently verify the purpose of the Russian yacht's visit, but most of the residents here believe they fled the call-up. It is rare to see foreign yachts here. It has been a while since that yacht came in. It has a Russian flag on it. I think they fled from the call-up. Taiwan is now reopened to visitors. Dozens of excited tourists from Thailand were the first to take a trip. They were given an extra special welcome by officials with cuddly teddy bears. The tourists stepped off the plane on Thursday shortly after midnight local time. Officials handed out a specific stuffed animal, Taiwan's endangered black bear. The bear is known for its black fur and white collar. Taiwan is one of the last countries to lift entry and quarantine rules as large parts of the rest of Asia relaxed or lifted them completely. The island announced last month that it planned to finally end its mandatory COVID-19 quarantines this month. Some rules remain, including a requirement for people to monitor their health for seven days after arrival and perform rapid tests on themselves. Prior to the pandemic, Taiwan was a popular tourist destination, especially for travelers from Japan, South Korea and Southeast Asia. Tourists are usually attracted by the island's cuisine and natural beauty. And still to come, a former French member of parliament who ran for president speaks out, saying the COVID-19 vaccine left him needing open-heart surgery. And Hungary's thermal baths have fallen victim to Russia's energy war. Rocketing gas bills are now crippling the centuries-old industry. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. The International Monetary Fund says Ukraine needs between $3 and $4 billion a month in financial help to ensure its government does not collapse during the war. IMF's managing director said the billions of dollars in aid would go towards much-needed social services, rebuilding infrastructure, and energy imports. She says the country's financial needs could increase as the war evolves. The IMF's estimate came the same day Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky appealed to international donors for billions of dollars. Zelensky says as much as $55 billion is needed to cover next year's estimated budget deficit, and another $17 billion is needed to help the country begin rebuilding critical infrastructure. He told finance ministers that the more assistance Ukraine gets now, the sooner it can end the war and prevent it from spreading to other countries. We have an update on former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan, who the U.S. says has been wrongfully detained in Russia for nearly four years. Whelan was able to call his parents Wednesday for only the second time in nearly a month. That's according to his brother, David Whelan. He said Paul was moved to a prison hospital on September 15th for an unknown reason, and Paul is not sure why he is there. Whelan was convicted on espionage charges in 2018 and sentenced in June 2020 to 16 years in prison. U.S. officials denounced the trial as unfair. The Biden administration has proposed a prisoner swap for the release of Whelan and women's basketball star Brittany Griner. Griner was sentenced in August to nine years in jail after pleading guilty to drug smuggling. She was carrying less than a gram of cannabis oil in her luggage. U.S. officials have said they've received little meaningful response from Russia on the proposed deal. 
and over to an oil pipe leak in Poland. There are no signs so far that the leak was caused by interference from a third party. That's according to Poland's pipeline operator. A spokeswoman says that the company's technical services are working to restore the pipeline section as soon as possible. The leak means less Russian oil is making it to Germany through Poland. Europe is on high alert over its energy security as Moscow's invasion of Ukraine has cut gas supplies. Europe is also keeping an eye on the integrity of its energy infrastructure. That is on account of the major leaks found last month in the Nord Stream 1 and 2 gas pipelines. Both the West and Russia have blamed sabotage. A former French member of parliament says he nearly died from a COVID-19 vaccine and he questions if the French president is vaccinated. Entity's France correspondent David Vives sent us this report. Jean Lassalle was a member of the French parliament for 20 years and once ran for president. In a recent interview, he told NTD France that he decided to get the COVID vaccine to be an example to others. This was a time when Mr. Macron, Boris Johnson and all the others, like the president of Russia, rolled up their sleeves. We saw people making appeals in front of the public, urging them to get vaccinated. I also wanted to do this. Lassalle say he fell gravely ill after the shot. It was the time when the re-election campaign for members of parliament began. He decided not to run due to his health issues, including an open-heart surgery. This vaccine, I didn't get COVID. I got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which almost killed me. It deformed my heart. I have had four operations since January the 3rd of this year. The surgeon succeeded in putting my oracles in place to make them work normally. Otherwise, I would surely be dead. An excerpt of the interview has been trending on Twitter since Sunday. Lassalle says French President Emmanuel Macron and other members of the government lied about their vaccination status. I was an MP. And I didn't want to give the impression that I wasn't doing my job. And I didn't know at the time that Emmanuel Macron wasn't vaccinated. I didn't know at the time that most of the members of the government weren't vaccinated. And I didn't know that a significant number of my fellow MPs weren't either. Macron said he was vaccinated on May 31st of last year. However, health insurance figures show that the president got the jab on July 13th one day after he announced that vaccination would become mandatory for the French people. The Elysee Palace said this was a data entry error and that Macron was indeed vaccinated on May 31st. According to the Putsch media outlet, Lassalle's words are important as they address what it calls an explosive situation of vaccine side effects. Regarding Lassalle's claims, the Elysee Palace didn't respond in time for broadcast. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. German prosecutors say they've charged a German man with several sexual offenses they believe he committed in Portugal between 2000 and 2017. The 45-year-old man is a suspect in the Madeleine McCann case. The prosecutor's office said the charges included aggravated rape and sexual abuse of children and that the investigation into the disappearance of Madeleine McCann continues. Convicted child abuser Christian Bruckner is behind bars in Germany for raping a 72-year-old woman in the area of the Algarve, where Madeleine was missing in 2007. He was formally identified as a suspect in the McCann case in April. Investigators believe he killed the then three-year-old British girl after abducting her from a holiday apartment in 2007.
What happens in Ukraine is affecting the cave bath industry in neighboring Hungary. A centuries-old attraction has yielded to a modern crisis, soaring energy prices. The thermal springs of Mistol Kapolka Cave have delighted generations of Hungarians, even since before Roman time. But just this week, operator Miskolci Fjorduk made a tough call to end their business indefinitely. We have to close the cave bath, and there's one single reason for that. Our gas usage in the three months, from October to December, will cost an additional 61 million forints. Just these three months alone, at the public gas procurement, we didn't get a 6.8 times higher price, but a nine times higher price. The ancient cave features five bathing halls and a labyrinth of passages with massage jets and echo chambers. Aside from naturally heated waters, the venue also relies on gas to bring up the temperature in pools and caves. This has translated into crippling bills with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the energy war, a plight shared by other businesses in Europe and beyond. Visitors are clutching what might be their last chance to bathe in the waters, though some still hold on to a sliver of hope. We are very sorry that it's closing. We were very surprised to hear the news that this big pleasure bath will close. I would like to go and protest so that it doesn't get shut down. But somehow a solution should be found so that it can continue to operate. Others are concerned about the closure's ripple effects, especially nearby hotels and guest houses. The hotels and pensions will go bankrupt as they are dependent on this. And now everyone will be done after this. I think, unfortunately, there will be many more closures like this in the future. So we are trying to make use of what we can before it happens. The Hungarian government is bailing out small and medium-sized enterprises in the manufacturing center. But financial support does not yet cover the service sector. Data shows that Miskolci Fjordok has been in the red over the past four years. For a company still reeling from the COVID-19 slump, the higher gas bills may be the last straw. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, a Japanese cosmetic company produces a new mosquito repellent. It's part of an effort to combat dengue fever and other mosquito-borne diseases in Thailand. And researchers in Malaysia create a new device to help workers harvest fruit from oil palm trees. The outfit promises to lighten the load for laborers. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. Dengue fever is a serious health problem in Southeast Asian countries. It's transmitted through mosquitoes. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details on a new mosquito repellent. Dengue fever is a viral infection transmitted to humans through mosquitoes. It usually only causes mild illness, but severe cases can cause flu-like symptoms and sometimes death. To help control the disease in Thailand, Japanese cosmetic company Cow produced a new mosquito repellent. The key ingredient in this serum is a liquid silicone oil. When a mosquito tries to draw blood, the oil sticks to the mosquito's legs, making it fly away. 
We started the research by closely observing mosquitoes' behavior and body structure. After a mosquito sets its feet on the surface, it will settle its body and rest. So we thought it would be good if we could make it impossible for mosquitoes to land. And we looked for a surface that mosquitoes don't like. Conventional repellents work by blocking mosquitoes' sense of smell, preventing it from finding its target. But this repellent creates an intolerable surface for mosquitoes. According to the World Health Organization, dengue cases in Southeast Asia increased by 46 percent from 2015 to 2019. Mosquitoes carry diseases such as malaria and dengue fever. It's not just about itchy skin. There are people who actually lose their lives. So we want to do something about it. Children and young people are particularly prone to mosquito bites. So the company has also launched a pilot project for young Thai students. In mid-September, the firm held a workshop about mosquito-borne diseases, including dengue and malaria. If you look at the um, infected person, infected people in Thailand, uh, the younger generation is the most. So um, yeah, um, under our God Our Future project, uh, of course, uh, we would like to um, save uh, the children, the future generation first. So that's why we would like to focus the activity for um, younger generation. The new mosquito repellent is available for about $1.80 at local stores in Thailand. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Researchers in Malaysia are developing a new tool to help workers harvest fruit from oil palm trees. The innovation comes as the country grapples with a shortage of plantation workers. Malaysian research student Mohamed Hazik Ramli wears an outfit resembling a light jetpack. He uses poles strapped to his biceps to wield a long pruning pole. The gear allows him to clip sharp fronds and heavy bunches of fruit from oil palm trees nearly twice his height. The use of the exoskeleton gives support to both sides of my upper arm. So when I'm working, it holds up my arm. So as such, I'm not using energy. I can just pull, prune, and sculpt the palm tree. For the lifting work, same thing. I just switch on the exoskeleton. Working on a three-acre family estate, he's part of a team trying to perfect the wearable exoskeleton. The outfit promises to lighten the load for laborers. So the idea is for the harvesters to wear the exoskeleton and uh, help them or assist them in reducing the burden or the load that they have to, uh, to, to bear, especially in carrying the pole from tree to tree and to actually do the harvesting process. A labor crunch is expected to cost companies over $4 billion in losses this year. About 80% of the world's palm oil is produced in Malaysia and Indonesia. But Africa, Latin America, and India are growing competitors. I think we've been the, one of the major players. Now we're still the second major player. We, we used to be the number one. So I think, um, and we are also, I can say, the pioneer in terms of uh, technologies, research, and whatnot. So I think uh, it's very critical that I think the, the industry have to think for the future. The palm oil industry has been scrutinized for unethical labor practices, including slavery. The fruit of the oil palm tree is one of the most efficient ways to produce oil, so it remains popular and inexpensive. The oil is in over half of packaged food products in the U.S. and is also widely used in cosmetics and cleaning products. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. 
Over in Syria, a rare mosaic panel was recently discovered in the country. Experts say it dates back to the Roman era. The mosaic panel was found situated between two houses in a street. The panel is believed to have originally been the flooring of a hall. It's around 20 feet by 65 feet. According to experts, the artifact depicts two main scenes from the Amazon War, which is mentioned in Homer's Iliad. There's also a picture of Poseidon. Experts expect to find more artifacts in the area, with the panel likely continuing underneath neighboring houses. Syria's 11-year war dealt a heavy blow to the historical artifacts based there. Extremist groups have destroyed many of them, and smugglers have looted many others. The world's first space tourist wants to go back, only this time he signed up for a spin around the moon aboard Elon Musk's Starship. For Dennis Tito, it's a chance to relive the joy of his trip to the International Space Station now that he's retired with time on his hands. I've saved up my money over the years, and uh, this is one of the things I'm doing, just like somebody else might be going skiing or whatever else. But I do feel that there is tremendous value to society in what we're doing. Tito's week-long moonshot, its date to be determined and years in the future, will bring him within 125 miles of the lunar far side. He'll have company, his wife and 10 others willing to shell out big bucks for the ride. Tito won't say how much he's paying. His Russian station flight cost $20 million. The 82-year-old is actually the second billionaire to make a starship reservation for a flight around the moon. A Japanese fashion tycoon announced in 2018 that he's buying an entire flight so he can take eight or so others with him. The two men both previously flew to the space station from Kazakhstan atop Russian rockets 20 years apart. And coming up, zoos in Northern California forage in local neighborhoods to help feed their animals. They're gathering tasty plants like eucalyptus and acacia leaves. In the Pacific Northwest, at this time of year, a peculiar sound can be heard, and it means bull elk are ready for a big competition. Stay tuned for more in just a minute. And over in New Zealand, more than 470 pilot whales have died. This is after they stranded themselves on two remote beaches. None of the stranded whales could be refloated and all died, either naturally or were euthanized. The whales beached themselves on the Chatham Islands, which are home to about 600 people and located 500 miles east of New Zealand's main islands. The Department of Conservation said 232 whales stranded themselves Friday at one of the beaches and 245 more became stranded at another beach on Monday. A nonprofit group that helps rescue whales called it a heartbreaking loss. The deaths come just two weeks after 200 pilot whales became stranded on a beach in Tasmania, Australia, and died. And zoos in Northern California are turning to foraging local plants to help feed their animals. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on what's on the menu. Jorge Trujillo is gathering eucalyptus leaves around San Francisco. He works for the city's zoo and is collecting the tree cuttings for koala bears. Sometimes we struggle very much, especially in the winter. It's kind of difficult to find the eucalyptus. Uh, in the summer, it's a little easier to find it. Eucalyptus leaves are the main diet for the koalas. Koalas can eat more than two pounds of the leaves a day, but it's expensive to ship and only lasts for a day or two once it's unfrozen. So eucalyptus is the only thing that they eat. It is their sole diet, but what a lot of people don't know, it's also where they get their 
water from. So most of the eucalyptus have between 40 to 70% water in the leaves. So a truly healthy koala will not need to drink from a water source. The San Francisco Zoo says it now gathers more than 60 tons of plants from city parks each year to help feed its two koalas. That's one of the limiting factors with having koalas is just how much they eat because since they only eat that new growth, there's you offer them a lot and they eat very little of it. So it's a huge financial output if you live in a place that eucalyptus does not grow abundantly. Other zoos also forage for local vegetation to feed a variety of animals. In Oakland, a local tree trimming crew removes limbs from acacia trees. The leaves are a favorite of the zoo's five giraffes. Giraffes out in the wild can eat about 75 pounds of food a day. They are walking miles and miles, expending a lot of energy, so they need to eat a lot of food. And while we can't sustainably grow that here ourselves, we look to the community for help. The zookeepers say foraging became vital during the pandemic, as zoos across the country struggle to afford food for their animals. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. We're now well into the fall season, and in the Pacific Northwest, that means an eerie sound likely fills the air. It's the sound of bull elk bugling. Here's more. This is the sound of rutting season for the Roosevelt elk. Skylar King is a keeper at Northwest Trek. You can hear the bugling, this kind of high caning call. It sounds very eerie. If you didn't know what it was, you would not put it to the animal that it comes from. As summer days dwindle and fall colors begin to emerge, these otherworldly sounds fill the air in the foothills of Mount Rainier at the Northwest Trek Wildlife Park, about an hour from Seattle. Roosevelt elk are the largest of the four surviving subspecies in North America. As they enter their annual mating season, bull elk make these elaborate sounds to show their dominance over other members of the herd and secure mates. The large elk can be found sparring with other members of the herd, vying for female partners. The goal for the males during the breeding season is to be the only boy with all the females and to keep all the other males away from the girls. Uh, and then the younger boys are hoping to sneak in and maybe get a girlfriend that year. But typically it's just going to be our oldest boys. And they're going to be the ones who are really competing, uh, bugling. Even the younger male elk take part in the rituals, locking antlers in imitation of the behaviors that will make them successful in future seasons. So for most of the year, they're all friends. They form what's called a bachelor herd, which are all the adult males when it's not the breeding season, go and hang out together. Now that changes at the end of the summer. Those hormones start changing. That's when the elk shed their velvet off their antler, along with the other antlered animals, that velvet falls off. King says that elk's rutting season can be witnessed in various parts of North America during early autumn, but it's dependent upon climate and herd subspecies. We have a winner for the Fat Bear Contest. The champion is in Alaska at the Katmai National Park and Preserve. It's Bear 747, and he's put on a lot of pounds to get through winter. And it looks like it's paid off. Fans voted him the winner of the annual competition. The annual competition starts when the park's bears congregate, looking for a great big final meal before they head off to hibernation. Fans from around the world can vote for their favorite behemoth bear at explore.org. This year, Bear 747 not only ripped apart the salmon, but also the competition. 
Estimated to weigh around 1,400 pounds, experts say he is one of the biggest brown bears on the planet. The competition, though, was filled with some controversy in the semis when officials found thousands of unverified spam bots for another bear. But after that was clarified, 747 was cleared for landing and jiggled his way to the crown. Even though 747 is not one to fish for compliments, his online profile says he keeps his status by his size alone, not needing to turn aggressive, proving that nice bears don't always finish last. Can you imagine sleeping only six nights a week? That's what's happening to children due to social media use. You'd be exhausted, right? How do you function like that? Here's Gina Marie, who brings us strong mind and body. Children are losing the equivalent of one whole night's sleep because of increasing social media use. New research by a university in the UK revealed this disturbing trend. The recommended sleep time for 10 and 11 year olds is 9 to 12 hours a night. For the 60 school children studied, they're getting only 8.7 hours a night. Side effects the kids experienced were higher levels of FOMO, or fear of missing out, anxiety and bad sleep. During the lockdowns, phones were useful to maintain contact with peers. The connectedness was helpful. Research started when schools reopened and tested children's nighttime routines and sleep quality. Lack of sleep in this preteen age group has profound implications. Almost 70% reported that they spent more than four hours a day using social media. 12.5% said they used it in the middle of the night or when they should be sleeping. Let's take a look at some of the apps that the children used. 89% used TikTok, 84% used Snapchat, 84.5% used YouTube and 57% used Instagram. Ben Carter is a reader in medical statistics at King's College in London. He has written highly cited papers looking into problematic smartphone usage. His paper includes mental health outcomes among young children. The evidence is clear. When these devices are used late in the day, circadian rhythms are interrupted. This is one of the biggest predictors of poor sleep. The knock-on effects on sleep brings children's cognitive, biological and social development into question. Sleep is very important for emotional processing, memory, consolidation, creativity and problem-solving. These processes don't get a chance when sleep-deprived. And don't forget there's a lot of negative influences vying for your children's attention, so be sure to educate them on some of the dangers present there. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.